Hello, and welcome to another Raven Narratives podcast. I'm Sarah Severson. And I'm Tom Yoder. The stories you're about to hear were told at Road X Works in Yellow Jacket, Colorado, when the theme was dirty work. The story you're about to hear was told by Elise Goggin. Here's her story. I currently work uh, at a farm in Mancus, um, but I'm not going to talk about that, even though that is some pretty dirty work, uh, some days anyway. I'm going to talk about my former job. So uh, I guess in my former life, I uh, formerly worked for the Army Corps of Engineers and then a large environmental consulting company, and we um, primarily cleaned up old military sites, so World War II era training ranges both chemical and standard munitions. So there's a lot of dirty stuff out there. Um, My background's in geophysics. So my job was basically to find the unexploded ordnance and then tell people to go dig it up and blow it up. Um, So I wasn't the one actually doing the the digging and the blowing up, which is the real dirty work, but um, I was in the field a lot. And I guess the story I'll tell you tonight is about a time when I was doing field work up in Cape Cod. Uh, in the middle of January, so it was very cold. We were on the Massachusetts Military Reservation, which is now called Joint Base Cape Cod. It's between Sandwich and Bourne, for those of you that know that area. Um, So it was January, freezing cold, um, and I'm operating this piece of equipment that has to be towed around by a little John Deere tractor. So I'm driving this little dinky John Deere tractor around this impact area that had been used basically from the 50s to the early 2000s. So it is very cratered um, and there's munitions everywhere that you go um, trying to, you know, avoid a 155 projectile as I'm driving this this John Deere around, which is something about this big. Um, So anyway, you can imagine it's pretty cold in Cape Cod in the middle of January, like negative 10 degrees, pretty high humidity. Um, like it's colder than it ever gets in Colorado, in my opinion. Uh, so I'm bundled up and we're doing like 45 minute work rest breaks. So you're on the tractor for 45 minutes until you can't feel your feet and your fingers. And also you're using a touch screen to control the geophysics equipment. So you can't have, uh, like thick gloves on. You got to have the ones with the little, you know, touch thingy, which those aren't that warm. Um, and it's just me and this other gentleman, he's 45, his name's Marty, he's a good guy. Um, so we switch back and forth. Uh, one of the limiting factors of working the, at this installation in the winter is no one else is working there in the winter. So they didn't have the typical porta johns out. Um, and I'm like the one that's gonna pee outside, like I'll probably do that. So I was like, no worries, like I'll, I'll be fine. And most days, you know, I'd. I'd drink my coffee early enough to get things moving before I had to head out to the field. So I was pretty good to go. Like, just had to pee a couple times a day. But one day, that wasn't the case. So had to, had to find a spot in a crater probably, you know. Because um, there was there were some trees, but not real close. And I didn't feel like tromping through the snow uh, to find a, a spot. And the other guy was on the tractor, and he wasn't paying attention. So found a spot in a crater, realized I can't dig into the ground here. Like, there's bombs underneath the ground. (laughs) So this is not a leave no trace story, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, 
but <laughs> anyway, dug a little bit into the snow because I felt like that was safe enough. Um, undid my down jacket, pulled off my fleece. I was wearing overalls, and really, the overalls are the key to this story. <laughs> so undid my overalls, pulled down my fleece, pulled down my long johns. By that point, it was emergency time. Code brown is what we like to call it. <laughs> did, you know, did my business. I'm freezing cold because I'm exposed to the elements at this point in time. So I'm immediately pulling everything back up. Pull my overalls back up, put them over. Oh, what's that? <laughs> on my overalls oh no so I didn't really know what to do I'm in the middle of like nowhere kind of and I'm with this dude that I don't know that well so I decided to just you know scrub it scrub it in the snow a little bit I guess you could say and just go for it I was wearing enough layers over it that I was like eh, I think it'll be okay <laughs> So I buckle back up, put on my fleece, put on my down, go to the car. It's like lunch break. I'm smelling it. The car, of course, the heater is full blast. Marty comes in off the tractor, and I'm just sitting there hoping Marty doesn't smell what I'm smelling. But I'm sure he did. We never talked about it all day long. We just talked about football or something. <laughs> And uh, so I worked the rest of the day, drove home, nothing was said, but it was a pretty dirty day at work. <laughs> so. Thank you, Elise, for telling that story. Our next storyteller was Matt Cornell. Here's his story. So uh, this will be... Uh my sharing of a collection of experiences at my first job. I mean, how many of you out there happen to have your favorite job for a first job? No? No? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is not your fault. I had nothing to do with it. But, but you know, uh, what I would like to have been my favorite job for a first job would have been on the railroad and... For those of you who are familiar with me, you might be familiar with uh, one of my, at least one of my stories from previous Raven narratives, but that's for another time. What I want to talk about is like my first real job, uh, you know, with real hours, real pay. Hey, and, uh, you know, I was wanting a job on the road, but courtesy of, uh, let's see, a vocational program. And I got to be a dishwasher at Fort Lewis College. Yeah. <laughs> now, yes. <laughs> it's uh, not what I'd picture as uh, my favorite job. And, you know, first couple weeks are the most overwhelming, mostly because you don't have any idea what you're doing. You know, it sounds simple enough, but when you, you know, Cleaning dishes, you know, I do that all the time at home. How hard could that be? <laughs> then the first day comes. And, you know, it's easy enough with, you know, one set of dishes, but multiply that by 800 students, 
that you have to do within like two or three hours. Ay, ay, ay. But then I had like a, it was a job of many firsts, put it that way. Hey, a first mentor who, you know, these words have stuck with me through this day. You know, don't ever let it get to you. You And sure enough, within a couple weeks, I was able to get in full stride. And uh, had my first real accident during that same summer in which, you know, water and concrete don't really mix that well, particularly when you have plain tennis shoes. And I almost landed face first on a concrete floor. Yeah. And it would be far from my last. But from it, I developed a kind of danger sense, which is great for 95% of the time. And, you know, in the latter years, I would be a safety officer for that job. And later that fall, I had my first real leadership role. Oh, you know, it was a little nerve-wracking. You know, I wasn't exactly the veteran back then, which, you know, by default was the de facto leader of the Dish team. (laughs) But afterwards, it was like, I never felt more empowered. (laughs) You know? You know? I was able to embrace it with a lot more confidence. Hence, then, even throughout that summer, which, you know, if you know summer camps at Fort Lewis College, it's even busier than the semester, even if only for a couple of weeks. You know, as opposed to 800 students a day, you're feeding 12, 1,500 kids. And, and you know, that's busy. They had to call in the reinforcements. Which, you know, you have very few purpose-made dishwashers in the, in the team. <laughs> yeah, there were times I had to finish the whole thing by myself just because I was the only one there. There. And, you know, with the amount I had to deal with, you know, I'm one of those guys where you have to, you know, when I'm paid, I've all, I always see the job through, you know, courting off, you know, leave on cleave, if you're familiar with old westerns, but, you know, oh, oh, there was one moment where, normally I'm out by 10 p.m., I was up until 2 a.m., yeah, it was that busy, and none of my other teammates were there to support me, hey, and so, that became my first real rallying cry to management in order to hire more. And sure enough, within a few weeks, we have like three or four. And we were able to do the job on time. And so, that's, hey, another first was a first, you know, real nickname I, I received. You know, my name is Matt. I received the name El Matador. <laughs> because I was hanging the red cape in front of, of the bulls that were managers. <laughs> you know, how many of you have had a uh, 
uh, boss that you didn't quite get along with. You know? Yeah, yeah, okay, so a few of you. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, my third manager, who I won't name, 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 you know, she was one of those first years in which the first moment she arrived, I learned later on, uh, she said, okay, the way you're doing things are over. And our, my supervisor's like, Good to meet you, too. <laughs> in fact, it was a, she was such a headstrong manager that I had to fight with her on and off 18 months just over a safety issue. And even then, it took a personal experience on her part to see my perspective, at which point she became a determined convert. <laughs> Because there was an ongoing movement from the kitchen to move dirty dishes to our room via racks. Racks. You know, it was one of those tall towers. But uh, there were two problems with it. One, they're top-heavy, which is not very useful on uneven ground, which we do have some of. The other problem is we know the safest way to move anything with our normal carts is by pushing them. With a rack, you have real tunnel vision at best. <laughs> and so one summer, I, I was moving it via the rack, if for no other reason than to shut everybody else up. <laughs> and, and I ran across an obstacle, which was the base of a sign we had outside of our door. The rack stopped. The dishes did not stop with it. It was a, it was a hell of a mess. <laughs> At which point I said, "Okay, that's the last time. I'm not moving it via the racks ever again." Then, of course, came the 18 months where I had to fight with my manager on and off to see my perspective on the matter. There, so it was a job of many firsts, there. and also la learned a lot about myself that, you know, I really like to do the dirty work, you know, that's what these hands are made for. <laughs> and, and how I qualified as a leader, even better than a bunch of bosses I met over the years. There's, so, your first job does not have to be your favorite. You just make the most of it. And the other thing is, you, when you work dirty jobs and odd jobs like that, you develop a better appreciation for those who do that kind of thing for a living. Thing. And a lot of it goes underappreciated. So if you find somebody who does a dirty job, you know, give them a shake of your hand. <laughs> Thanks, Matt, for telling that story. The next story you're about to hear was told by Nathan Gilpin. Here's Nathan's story. So this story will take us far from a place like we're in today and actually a little bit away from our theme of the night. Um, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest just outside of uh, Portland, Oregon. And one summer during college, I was working with an engineering company that does high-tech high and commercial HVAC, so heating, ventilation, and air conditioning stuff. 
And one of our contracts was with Intel. And everyone's kind of heard of Intel. Their main big campus is up there just outside of Portland. And so it's kind of a neat place to be because it's a bunch of stuff that looks like it's for the spaceship being built or something really technical. Um, but the thing about working for Intel was they are a hurry up and wait sort of organization. And if anybody knows that term, um, it's hurry up, we really need this job done immediately. And you get there and you set up and you change your whole day to do it. And then they say, hold on, wait, it's going to cost way too much money to do that right now. Which was true because they could shut down like one tool and that's like million dollars an hour type of tool. So you have a lot of pressure when they're going to do a shutdown for you. But uh, I, w I got roped into this special job. Um, it was kind of one of those big emergencies. Holy smokes, we got we to gotta work on this thing. And there's probably, there probably 10 of us on this team. And why we go away from the theme of this evening is these, are, these spaces that we're working in are the cleanest spaces on this planet. So the clean rooms where all the wafers that are in our computers and our phones and all that kind of stuff are in these immaculately pristine clean rooms. If I remember right, it's less than um, 0.3 micron size dust, one part per million um, in these huge rooms, multi-football fields big. And uh, they're also perfectly climate controlled for all the necessary reasons with high-tech stuff. So it's 74 degrees constantly. And not like our houses where you set your thermo your thermostat to that and then like this room's freezing cold and that room's really hot. It's just everywhere is 74 degrees. So to go into these and us humans were dirty, we've got to put suits on and they're called bunny suits and they lack the ears, but they, <laughs> they, are, uh, they are a type of um, material that doesn't let any of our skin particles out, doesn't let the dirt off our clothes come off. Um, they do breathe a little bit, which is helpful when it's 74 degrees. Um, but that's what you got to wear, plus boot covers and hair nets and beard nets and the whole nine. So a real comfortable place to work. <laughs> and these tools that do different processes that I don't pretend to know are maybe about the size of a refrigerator. And they sit on an 18-inch tall elevated floor. So there's a concrete base about 18 inches up, um, metal grate like mezzanine. And underneath the tools is where all the business end is that we care about when we're doing this engineering work. So there's 10 of us. Some people are on a whole different floor monitoring some stuff for us. There's a couple of us up top that have to get in and around this tool to make these adjustments. And it's nothing technical. We're literally just like tapping levers and changing airflows and stuff. But the airflows that are going through here are carrying waste. And it's usually ammonium waste. And so that's not great to be around. So if you're going to go underneath the floor, not only do you get to wear your one bunny suit, but you put on a Gore-Tex suit on top of that because they want nothing to hit you and want nothing to come out of you. So you're wearing two bunny suits, your regular clothes, and one of which is Gore-Tex. And everybody knows Gore-Tex is not super comfortable to be in. It doesn't really breathe that well. So um, one of the big reasons I got hired for this job or nominated for this particular job is I'm really long and skinny. <laughs> and so when there's an 18-inch gap underneath the floor that you have to get into, the skinny guy is 
the guy that's going in. <laughs> the mezzanine panels are about 24 inches square, but up against the refrigerator size machines, it's a half panel. So it's 24 by 12. Suit up. Nathan, it's your turn to go underneath the machine. These are probably like 23, I'd guess, based on that experience. So kind of wiggle down into this floor. It takes a good couple of minutes. Try not to tear the suit. Lay down underneath the floor so you're laying down and got the mezzanine here and your work that you're going to try to do is over here. And I've got a radio on trying to hear what's going on with the rest of the group. And they say, okay, hold on, we got to wait. Because <laughs> this is Intel and we hurry up and wait. So it's okay, that's fine, that's fine, I'm, I'm cool. I'll just hang out and get a report back that it's probably gonna be about 20 minutes. Nathan, do you wanna come out of the floor? No, it took about that long to get back in. I just wanna be ready when the job's ready, okay. So just lay underneath the floor and it's warm and you can tell you're sweating inside from everywhere because you're in Gore-Tex. And then you start to think, it took me like 10 minutes to get in this hole. If there was a fire, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if there was another earthquake, and then you're like, holy smokes, this is not good to think about. So that's when I learned the power of the mind, because I just went, nope, <laughs> we're not having those thoughts right now. Because I'm still stuck here, and I'll go to a nice snowy mountain and just not be hot and not be thinking about fires. And so I just kind of closed my eyes, went into the zone, and I think that was probably the first time I ever meditated. Um, <laughs> and it worked. Uh, the panic went away and got the job done. And so probably the dirtiest part of this whole story is then you get out, and you get to take your Gore-Tex suit off, and you gotta empty it out on the floor. Because you were sweating a lot when you were thinking about all those tragic things. So that's my story of dirty work. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Nathan, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller at Road X Works in Yellow Jacket, Colorado, when the theme was dirty work, was Lily Diane. Here's Lily's story. dirty work story is about it happened almost well around this time of year in 1977 I had a bad breakup with a, uh, a duo uh, it was a band that I was in I was living in Ohio at the time so I decided I needed to scamper home and you know kind of like clean up from that experience and um, I could tell you about that dirty work or dirty business of the breakup, but I won't. I'd rather tell you about the dirty uh, work business of being a musician on the road. Wait, I don't want to tell you about those stories because those stories could probably be really dirty business, dirty work stories. Did that make sense? Yeah. Musicians, you know the rumors. So I won't go there, but I will go with the experience of living my dreams and the dirty work that you go through to live your own dreams. So I decided 
I needed to streamline so I could pack up and get home because another part of the story is my little sister was having her very first baby and I wanted to get home before uh, the baby was born so I could support her and help her. So I had these big custom column speakers and they used to ride on the top of my Mazda um, it was a 1972 uh, uh, RX3 Mazda, but it started denting the ceiling, so I thought, I, or the top of the roof, so I, I thought, I'm going to sell them, streamline, and get myself a um, modern-day handheld communication device. Back in the day, we called those CB radios. <laughs> and um, I was mesmerized by CB radios, Everyone was. That was during the time everybody was watching um, uh, Smokey and the Bandit. You know, Burt Reynolds and everybody was all talking on CB radios. And I thought that would be a perfect thing for me to book home and have the CB radio. Well, I didn't have a lot of personal belongings at that time, but I did have three very valuable um, um, belongings. Those were my birds. I had two little birds, uh, Huey and Dewey. <laughs> they were little finches, and then I had uh, my cockatiel. He had big orange cheeks and this great big um, bright yellow uh, mohawk, and I named him Happy Feet after Steve Martin, back in the day, the Happy Feet. Well, my little bird, he was so special. Um, he actually was more like a dog. I could say Happy and I'd pat and he'd land wherever I asked him to come. He was so well behaved that I'd even bring him on stage with me. Now talk about uh, an attention whore. He f <laughs> this little guy figured out real quick, you know, that he could get attention. So one of the first ways he did it is he imitated my laugh. So I'd be on stage and I'd go, ha, 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 and then he'd go, ha, 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 and then everybody go, ha, 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 and then I'd laugh. It was like this chain reaction, but he was such a smart little bird. So I don't know. I was, might have been uh, just coming out of Kentucky. I was driving from Ohio. I was going back to California, and I thought, I need to get him out of this little cage. He needs some free time. So I brought him out so he could sit on my shoulder where he loved to nuzzle my neck and pick at my jewelry. And eventually, he learned to come down my arm and get up on the string wheel. And so as I <laughs> would be driving, he dee -dee 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 on both sides, he just loved it. And a lot of times too, he could grip and he would just fall asleep. Well, on the CB radio that I didn't quite have enough courage yet to use, I was still just listening, I could hear the truck drivers talking about us. <laughs> and they'd be like, we got to get up on that car from California with that girl with the bird on the wheel, you know, and see what is going on with this. So I, uh, I, they would be talking about us, and so... Um, I thought for the most of the time, Happy was just sleeping on the steering wheel. He wasn't. Here comes another shitty story. Um, <laughs> he actually was crapping um, while he was riding, and it was all landing on my bell-bottom pants. But I didn't know that. 
So I would get out and go into the restaurant, and I was sitting there, and I happened to notice people staring at me, and I looked down, and it's like, yipes, stripes, all down my legs from happy, happy feet uh, pooping on me. <laughs> so that's about as poopy as it gets, I think, here. But, <laughs> but anyway, well, no, there's one more poopy part. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we start practicing on the radio. And so I was getting my courage to talk on the radio because I always wanted to do the breaker, breaker, 10-4 somebody. You know, you got to just like 10-4 somebody out there. And so I started practicing with Happy. So I gave myself the handle of California Cream Puff. And, and I gave him the handle, which is, for those of you who don't know what a handle is, it's like a screen name <laughs> in modern day. So, and I know this is going to sound really tacky. I know better now. It's 2019, but back in the day, I named him Apache Hawk. Okay. <laughs> and, and so that was his, his handle. And wouldn't you know, in a very short period of time, Happy started learning to say breaker, breaker. That was his first word, breaker, breaker. So we go breaker, you know, breaker breaker one nine, come on back in. And he would come back in and, and he'd laugh and, and people, the truckers couldn't understand him. So we stopped somewhere in Indiana. Um, I had to get some gas and have a potty break. So I get out, I'm in the bathroom, I'm sitting on the toilet. I hear all this commotion, these ladies run in. And one of the ladies goes, do you have birds in your car? And I'm like, yes I do. And the one lady says, well, one of your birds just flew out of your car. It tried to follow you. And I was like, oh, crap. There's another <laughs> crappy part. Crap. Um, my bird. And so I hurried. I pulled up my pants. I ran out. And the lady says, he's just up in the sky doing loop-de-loops. And I look, and sure enough, he was up there just flying around. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then a flock of birds. He follows them. They go all the way across into this tree out in the middle of nowhere. I went, ah, oh. I started following them out there. Everybody that was around us, including those two ladies, followed us out there. They stood there. He was up in the tree. I'm like this, like, happy, happy feet, get down, like this. Nothing was working. I, I, over and over. So finally, I decided I might need to get my car and pull it around there. Because this one lady was standing there. She goes, he just fucking with you. Look at him up there. He just fucking with you. It's like, I know, I know. So anyway, I got my car, everybody left. I pulled out a blanket, I laid down on the ground. I stared up my glamorous life of being a musician on the road. I stare up my little bird. I decided I'd stay there as long as it took. And I fell asleep little caterpillar crawled across my face. I woke up. I screamed. Happy woke up. And slowly but surely, he came down. And he got right on my shoulder. That little dusty smell. I don't know if you've ever had birds. He had that little dusty smell. Well, wrapping this up, happy feet. It wasn't his last time he escaped. We made it back to California in time. We were there for the baby. He ended up escaping one last time. And he flew away. My girlfriend was taking care of him. A few years later, she was uh, going through some aviaries in Santa Barbara. And she hears one that laughs. And it sounds just like me. Oh. 
she walks over to the cage and she sees this little, little clowny looking bird doing this little thing and he goes, breaker, 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 breaker. <laughs> so breaker, breaker, 10-4, little buddy, I don't know where you are right now, but thank you for being a part of my <laughs> dirty business. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Lily, for telling that story. The next story you're about to hear was told by John Willard. Here's John's story. I got out of school, engineer, found myself in the oil fields of West Texas. Yes, that was nasty work. Rain, snow, dust, hot, cold, everything. The noise of the diesels, the crash in the pipes, and yes, I do badly now in restaurants and conversations. But you would think, and it was 32-hour work days. Yeah, that sounds pretty rough. That's a dirty job, John. But we loved it. And I also found out for myself that I do well in chaos because nothing ever went right. But I met in there, that oil field, a buddy, Tim and Patty, lifelong friends now. And one day, I... Uh, when at this point moved about an hour and a half away, I called Tim up and told him I'm going to be, you know, we both are the same days off. I'm going to come up and visit. Great, John, come on up. We got the finest linen for our couch. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I come up there, and the real dirty work in this story is Patty. Patty, this is kind of dark, but she worked for the social services of the county. And as a result, she would have to go out and take kids from residences. Now this is one of those things that we all know that humans do have their bad side. And you read it in the paper and there's a distance to it, but when it's in your living room, it affected all of her friends and we all rallied, you know, respected her and we understood what was going on, but it still really shook us up, well, it really shook Tim up. Whereas I'm very contemplative and I'll listen to things, Tim would every once in a while go on to a rage, just about, these people. And, the, and it's like, oh, okay, Tim. He can go on and on. I won't go on what he says, but the worst thing he'd say is what's wrong with them. Well, this all came to a head one night. I show up and we go golfing and drinking. Seventh hole, we're not fit to golf. So we come back. This is the early 80s in West Texas. So yes, we were doing things that today we would never do. We get back to the house. Pretty soon more people show up. There's barbecue. We have a great time. And pretty soon that evening, it comes down to a core group, and we're all playing cards. Well, about one in the morning, the phone rings, and we all look at each other. Uh-oh. Patty answers it. Yeah, okay, hello? All right, where is it? Okay, I'll be right there. And she hangs up, got to go. It's like, uh-oh. Party's over. Everybody disbands, and it's just me and Tim. Tim starts pacing. Of course, we've been drinking all day, and he's upset again this and that. She's going to see the child abuser. She's going to go get in trouble. He's going to do something to her, John. we got to do something. And of course, being the good friend that I am, I say, Tim, you're right. What are we going to do? <laughs> of course, you don't want me coming to any of your house fires at this point. But uh, he goes, we got to save Patty. You're right, Tim. we got to save Patty. Let's go. So we go out into the garage. The garage door comes up. It's you know, dark. It's calm out. I'm standing there at the garage door looking. Hey, it's raining now. And it's a really dark, quiet night out here. Meanwhile, Tim's behind me. I gotta get a weapon. 
He picks up a baseball bat. No, no, no. He picks up a hammer. No, no. And I'm like, gosh. And I'm looking out, and it's so peaceful and quiet out and dark. And all of a sudden, I turn around. He says, I got it. He straights the chainsaw, throws it in the back seat with the rum bottle from earlier in the day. We jump in the car and head out into the night. We're cruising along, the rain is coming down, the windshield wipers can't keep up, and he's, he's on a mission. And he looks out and he says, look at it rain, Johnny. I said, yeah, it's raining. He says, is the top up? Uh, Tim, we're not in your Triumph, we're in the station wagon. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> a little bit further along, the radio comes on, Mr. Ball, the dispatcher. Looking for someone to do a job at such and such place, and Tim picks it up. Yes, we're in the company car with a chainsaw in Rome. And he... Uh, he gets on there and says, Mr. Ball, yeah, it's Tim, me and John, we, we can go do that job. Well, Mr. Ball's been around a few years, and he knows these young kids from school. One in the morning, there's no, there's no good coming from that. All right, Tim, all right, Tim, don't worry about it. We got it. Okay. After a little while, he sits there and he, he says, John. And I smile inside because he said John, not Johnny. I knew he was settling down. He says, John, what are we doing? Oh, Tim, we, we got a chainsaw in the back. We're going to go get us a child abuser. It's going to probably hurt Patty. We're saving Patty. Uh, John, he's, the police show up. Well, yeah, they do. Uh, he thinks, if we show up like this, Patty will be pissed. <laughs> I said, probably. And uh, I think that scared him more than the police. So he finally slows down, he uh, turns the car around, and that pretty much brings an end to the, what we came to call the night of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, John, for telling that story. Our next storyteller is Dave Benga. Here's Dave's story. I just moved to Chicago after graduate school and was looking for a job. I was in my early 20s. Um, couldn't get a job dog walking, couldn't get a job working in the parks. I wanted to learn about plants a little bit. Um, this is way before farming. I had never done anything with plants at all. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to get my hands in the dirt a bit. Um, that's kind of irrelevant, but... I was looking through the classifieds every day in the paper, and uh, probably after a couple months of that, I, I found an ad that would pay you to get your hair cut. Um, and I had a girlfriend, my girlfriend that I was living with, she had um, very big Jewish hair at the time. When I met her, it was short. She sometimes talked about cutting it short. So I was like, hey, this, this ad uh, says you can... You can get like, I don't know, $30 per inch or something. However big the, the change was, was the more money you got. Um, so she said, well, okay, you know. <laughs> so we, I went with her because it, it was a weird thing to go do. <laughs> um, and it, we took a train, I took the L way out in the suburbs somewhere and uh, went to this guy's Ami went to his backyard. He had a little garage set up, and he said that he 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 did hair shows was his thing. 
you know, and he has (laughs) bald heads are his thing. So she she agreed to get her hair cut, and um, he he, he's like, "Oh, can I, you know, can I video it?" And she, you know, sure, whatever, you know. So he bicks her head bald, you know. And videos it and everything, and he's like, "Oh, do you, do you want to do this together?" <laughs> so I was, yeah. I mean, he only give me fifty bucks, maybe. My hair was like this. <laughs> fifty bucks. I hadn't had a job in a while, so he bigged my head, and he then like asked us to get together, and he you know filmed everything. <laughs> For hair shows or something, I don't know. He had some magazines of bald-headed women on the, on the covers, um, and it wasn't until like years later, maybe later twenties, it occurred to me, like as it didn't occur to me earlier, that people have funny little kink kinks like that. <laughs> so I was like, huh? And I googled it. I didn't find anything. Um, but somewhere, I'm in some, some guy's dirty little video. <clears throat> Thanks, Dave, for telling that story. The last story you're about to hear was told by Dave Butler. Here's Dave's story. I've been playing in the dirt since I was a little kid. I started out with uh, Tonka trucks, but all the work that I had done in my young adult life was pretty much dirty. Everything from washing dishes to digging ditches. And uh, in 1975, I bought my first Dodge truck, a 1962 Dodge Power Wagon. And I was amazed by it. I didn't know much about it, but I had to figure out things very, very quick. And through a series of events that happened, uh, I was working for my best friend at the time in Denver remodeling houses. He had been taking our withholding money and spending it instead of giving it to the IRS. I bailed him out by mortgaging some property I had and found myself a few months later without a job, uh, without a best friend, and without $30,000. So I, uh, I had a, my wife was pregnant, and I had two small children, and I moved to Iowa, and I started a small business there called Vintage Power Wagons, and our, I'd gotten interested in these trucks, um, many of which were made for the military. And the way it worked is that after each one of the wars that we had in this country, the government dumped huge amounts of surplus onto the markets. And it would show up at the GSA sales generally all over the country in this particular state. It was in Pueblo, Colorado. There was a big ordnance depot. And and what would happen is these people would buy this stuff and we'd go up for auction on pennies on the dollars, and then they would sell it off a piece at a time. 
And so I started finding these sources for all these old parts, and they were just spread in the most uh, odd places. One was Hooper, Colorado, which was one that was at the time a gold mine for me for, it was like a big treasure hunt for me to go out and find parts and pieces for these vehicles. So over the years, these places started to dwindle and I had to look outside the country. So I ended up uh, in Denmark in the late 90s and I pulled 50 Dodge trucks out of, uh, and a lot of parts out of Denmark and got them back to the US and sold them through my, my company there. And then um, I had a guy come into my office one day and he said, I, um, I asked him what he did. He was a customer. We were working on his vehicle and he said, hey, have you ever been to Thailand? You know, there's a lot of military stuff over there. And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, I'm going over there in a few weeks to get airplane parts. And I said, well, if I knew if there was anything over, I would. And lo and behold, two or three days later, I get this guy calls me and says that there's a big GSA sale in Thailand and they're auctioning off 335 Dodge trucks. And I thought, I'm gonna call this guy. Two days later, I had a plane ticket and I met him in Amsterdam and then I flew to Thailand. And uh, he met me there, we drove up to the base in the middle of Thailand and I walked into a field where there were 3,000 Dodge power wagons. It was like, <laughs> it was like, uh, it gives me chills just to still think about it. <laughs> and, um, I had, I was only there for three days. I went to look at these trucks, and the next day I went to the office, and this particular office was a, was run by JustMag, which is like the GSA, which the General Services Administration, but it was in foreign countries. And what would happen is these trucks, I started asking, like, where did these trucks come from? These are all left over from the Vietnam War. And all these trucks, like thousands of them, ended up in Thailand because that's where our B-52 air bases were. So I um, went to the office, and the guy there spoke English. I wrote my bid in, and I bid on 335 trucks, thinking, like, how the hell am I going to do this if I get this? <laughs> and I didn't get the bid. And in some way, I was disappointed, but I was relieved too, because it's like, oh, so much for that. And I asked for the phone number for the guy that had gotten the bid, and so they gave me, gave me the phone number. I called him up. I got somebody who couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak any Thai. And they asked for my phone number and my email address. I gave him my email address, and the next thing I started communicating with him. And um, this trip took place um, in early September t 2001. I flew back um, on the 9th of September 2001, and I was staying with some friends in California, and I got a call and, um, on, my, on my cell phone, and they said, uh, um, this man introduced himself to me, and he talked about the deal, and I offered to buy a hundred. I'd been through email, offered to buy a hundred vehicles, and I wanted to see if I could do that. He said yes. He could speak really good English, and that was the first time that I 
talked to a man by the name of Seren Binan. And so about that time, as we had just made the deal, the Twin Towers got hit in New York, and we were both watching it on TV as we, said, as we hung up, and we said, we'll revisit this again. The next February, I found myself in an airplane on the way to Thailand with a friend of mine, and we had sat down to look at the logistics of trying to pull this off, how we're gonna do that. Seren picked us up at the airport, and uh, that's when uh, I discovered that he was really there to, uh, to make sure that we had what we, what we needed. And so I, um, I set off and we did the complete project. It took us about two months. We were, it was some of the dirtiest work that I'd ever done. Um, we disassembled over 100 trucks, put them inside containers, and then shipped them back to the US. And as we finished, um, we were finished and I was about ready to go home. Um, I wanted to go pay Seren, and he wouldn't take any money. I went down to his office. We, um, it was a number of hours from where we lived. I went to pay him the money, and he said, no, no, I, you, I'm not going to take any money. And there were these pictures of wildlife all over his walls. And the walls we, um, were animals of, from all over the place. And the next thing I know, he said, would you like, I, I said, can I donate some money to your club here? And he said, yes. And so we, I gave him, I gave him some money. He calls me up that night and he said, would you like to go, here's what you, we're gonna do with your money, we're gonna buy this equipment and would you like to go install it in the wildlife sanctuary? Yes. We'll pick you up at 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., I climbed on the back of this truck that was full of radio towers and other equipment. And we drove about eight hours, got there the next morning, and we drove into Tungai Wildlife Sanctuary, which is uh, the largest wildlife sanctuary in, in Thailand. And for the next week, we traveled all the way through Thailand. And... Um, I saw things that I'd never, ever seen. I was in a place, such a remote place that I, you know, I couldn't believe it. So the following, um, after I got back, I was on the airplane and I um, was upset and I was mad, like, because why isn't the Thai government doing more here? Why aren't the Thai people doing more? And then it finally dawned on me that I had to do something. And so for the next 18 years, I've been involved and we have a wildlife foundation in Thailand that I've worked at. I've been to Thailand numerous times uh, into the wildlife sanctuary and saw my friend Seren and the immense project that he had to tackle, uh, saving wildlife and preserving wildlife in Thailand. And, um, He's an amazing individual and became my best friend. We have a we have a found we had a foundation and set up in Thailand in 2001 or 2006. And over the next years, um, I went back. Uh, he helped me the whole time with we removed over 500 trucks and in between we would go into the wildlife sanctuary and do the work there including building radio towers uh, an internet 
system in the middle of the jungle. All this stuff was impossible. And this last winter I had gone in uh, to help uh, with uh, a fishery uh, project that we've been working on with the uh, University of Florida. And uh, they found a bunch of new species. And one of these species they named after my friend, uh, Seren, the name of the fish is Gara Seren Binan. And um, just a week ago, I was in Thailand. Um, as my friend has had liver cancer for um, almost two years now. And he's almost died 15 times that I know of. And uh, I went to say goodbye. So a week ago, I was in Thailand and said goodbye. And uh, this morning, I got word that Sarin Binan uh, uh, passed this morning at 8.38 a.m. And uh, so tonight, I want to just dedicate uh, tonight to my friend Sarin for and all the 18 years that I enjoyed doing the, all the dirty work with him in the jungle and throughout Thailand. So thank you. Thank you, David, for sharing that story with us. And a big thanks to David and his partner, Rosie Carter, for hosting us at Road X Works for this very special Raven Narratives event. You can listen to all of our Raven Narrative stories at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please share them with your friends and leave your own comments. We do have a few more tickets left for our events on October 25th and 26th in Cortez and Durango when the theme will be Spooked. Find out more about those events and get your tickets while they last at ravennarrativestickets.org. And to check out our future events, including our December 6th and 7th Story Slams coming up with the theme of home, or to pitch your story for a future event, go to ravennarratives.org. The Raven Narratives is sponsored by Mancus Valley Resources. Find out how they support nonprofit projects in the Mancus Valley at mancusvalleyresources.com. Thanks also to Cortez Web Services, our web sponsor. Support your business's technological needs by going to cortezweb.com to discover more. Our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more on their Facebook page. That's at M-O-E Tones on Facebook. <laughs>